0: So, 10 people. Now, each of those people may choose 10 items off a long list of things, and then they're marooned in in a lonely place on the northwest coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, the quest here is to see how long each of them can last alone out in the wilderness. And their only link to the outside world is a satellite phone, and they can use that... um, to tap out, either because they've simply had enough or because they suddenly have an emergency. All these people are contestants in a reality TV show called Alone and all of them are trained survivalists. So for many of them, uh, they make their living teaching other people how to survive out in the wilderness. There's no camera crew on this one, so they have to film themselves getting about the business of building a shelter, uh, securing food and water, keeping a fire going, uh, fending off all the wild animals. The last person left alone goes home with 500,000 US dollars. But the real goal of the show is to see which of them don't just simply survive out in the wilderness, but actually go on and thrive in the wilderness. Alone. How well do human beings do all on their own? Well, we've come now to the end of Paul's letter that he's written to the Colossian church. And after the the towering Christology of Colossians 1, uh, the searching call to faith of Colossians 2, uh, the expose of Christian love in Colossians 3, Colossians 4 seems to kind of dive off the end of a cliff into very mundane matters. There's there's this seemingly disconnected set of fragments of news, these bitsy instructions to the Christian congregation. And be honest now, this is the bit of Paul's letters that you always leave unread, isn't it? If you're truly honest with yourself. This is about as interesting to most of us as the old classifieds in the newspaper. You remember those? Uh, You know, budgerigar, blue, free to a good home with Cage. Um, You know, I I could see eyes glaze over as soon as we got to that long list of names. Paul, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, Archippus. None of these people, maybe apart from Paul, have a large story to tell. And what little of their stories we do know comes uh, from hints, fleeting hints in the book of Acts and Paul's letters, and even Peter's letters. But what that does tell us shows us a church of great diversity. Tychicus, Onesimus, Epaphras, Archippus, Nympha, they're all locals. They, they come from Colossae, Laodicea, Ephesus. Aristarchus is Macedonian. He's from Thessalonica. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice, are Jewish Christians, like Paul. Onesimus is the runaway slave of a member of the congregation, Philemon. Luke is the equivalent of a medical doctor, a a skilled man of learning, a man of standing in the community. Nympha is most probably a woman and if so, she's a woman of some means and she has taken charge of her household. Demas and Mark both earn bad reputations elsewhere, as unreliable characters, people who desert Paul at critical times in his ministry. And Archippus himself has some kind of ministry to the church which he appears not to be applying himself to. This is a real mixed bag. There's a lot of names here, but there are no big names as such. So we learn about the church which meets at Nympha's house, but it is not Nympha's church. Archippus, Clearly has a ministry he should be attending to. But there's no Archippus Ministries International. And even Paul himself, he belongs to an exceptional group. He belongs to the apostles. But his chosen way of describing himself throughout this letter is as Jesus' slave, as the church's servant. And in this passage today, he reminds us no less than three times that he is in fact a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And that's not something you normally boast about to your friends and family. All these elusive threads of individual stories, these strands of instruction, these strings of greeting, begin to weave a colourful tapestry that shows us the church as a community and the community as the place where Christian formation takes place. And so the picture here is not of a loose collection of remarkable individuals or exceptional biographies, that there are no towering, uh, towering saints here, there are, there are no Christian big names, there is simply a picture of ordinary folk from all walks of life, just like us, in fact. Individuals from a very diverse range of racial and geographic, social, economic and intellectual backgrounds who are now woven into a single community, a community in which their common identity in Christ is now more important than any of their distinguishing features. And Paul has a vision for this community, and it shines out in a couple of statements he makes along the way. His hope in verse 8, that Tychicus will share something with the Colossian church which will encourage their hearts, and his news in verse 12, that Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for his home church, so that they may be mature and fully assured. Both these statements are an echo of Paul's mission statement that we found in Colossians 2, chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, where he said, That you may be encouraged in heart and united in love, that you may have the riches of full understanding, that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. This is a community. Information. And we've learned already that although the Colossians are well on their way, Paul's commended them for their love and their faith, which spring from the hope that they have in the gospel. Although they're well on their way, Paul nonetheless has expressed concerns about elements in their community which actually pose a threat to their maturing in faith and their going on in love. Elements which undermine the gospel itself. And so at the end of Paul's letter, we discover that the life of mature Christian faith does not happen alone. There are no survivalists in the Christian tradition. There are no macho men and macho women tackling the wilds without other people's help. There is only a community of believers, a body of people united in Jesus and connected to him as the head. As one of my teachers was fond of saying, we might enter the Christian life um, as an individual who are each saved, but as a saved people, God now locates us only in a community. And what's more, in that community, the New Testament really knows nothing of a professional class of Christians people that we would now think of as priests or or ministers or pastors, whatever you want to call them, it really only knows of ministry carried out by all believers. So to the Ephesians, Paul will write, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, that is, ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, our giftings are not all the same, but we are all gifted to participate in the same work. All of us are called to participate in the growing and the maturing of one another, into the fullness of Christ. And I want to say this morning that three things give that ministry shape. So I'm going to steal an illustration from Eugene Peterson. In a book called Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Ministry, he uses the image of a triangle to describe ministry. The three sides of the triangle, he says, are the visible lines of ministry work. So if, in fact you're a pastor, that looks something like preaching, teaching, administration. And he says a great deal of attention has been given to those activities, the nuts and bolts of of running church, as it were. But he says what actually gives ministry its shape are the angles. What determines the proportions of the sides are three essential acts of ministry. Prayer, reading scripture, and giving spiritual direction or forming spiritual friendship. If we're engaged in the ministry of forming the life of Christ in one another and ministering Christ to the world, then these are the three acts which give that ministry its shape. And I think the accuracy of Eugene's assessment is borne out by the way that Paul assigns value to exactly these three facets of the community's responsibility at the end of this letter. So, with the remainder of our time, let's briefly explore each of those. In verse 2, Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, remaining alert in prayer by thanksgiving. Pray also for us. That's a very fitting conclusion to a letter that also began with prayer. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He goes on to say, we've not stopped praying for you. And indeed, Paul will let the Colossians know that Epaphras is constantly wrestling in prayer on your behalf. Prayer brackets the opening and close of this letter because prayer is not an afterthought. It's not the thing that we attach to our own endeavours. It's not the, uh, the prayer, the little blessing we offer to God after we have done everything humanly possible. Prayer is an essential act in ministry. Paul's prayer for the Colossians, back in chapter 1, in verse 9, is that God would fill you with a knowledge of his will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And we learn that Epaphras, as he wrestles in prayer, is doing so exactly that the Colossians may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully complete. Prayer involves us giving our serious attention to God. Prayer does not actually get God moving with our plans, but rather gets us tuned into God's will. We fall into step with what God is already doing in creation and in salvation. So prayer occurs in response to the Father's word to us, a word revealed in his Son. So it's therefore a response of agreement. We're agreeing with God. We are not in charge. We are not dictating the terms on which we participate in either the world or in the church. Christ is Lord and the terms of our participation are dictated by his incarnation. His life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his future return. Prayer is about reframing my thoughts, my ideas, my priorities, my decisions, my will with this reality. And so, Paul and Epaphras' prayers indicate that the prerequisite to a well lived Christian life, a mature Christian life, is a knowledge of God's will, supernaturally revealed. Now, the use of our own intellect is not irrelevant, but finally, Prayer is response to God's revelation of himself. Prayer is talk to God, not simply talk about God. And central to that response of prayer is thanksgiving. Giving thanks is actually a a recurring theme through Colossians that we haven't looked at yet. It pops up in every chapter as the natural response of the maturing Christian. And to me, that suggests that the obvious place to begin in cultivating the essential act of prayer is with thanksgiving. Because deliberate thanksgiving assumes we are engaging with what God has already done, is already at work doing. Well, that brings us to reading Scripture, then, as the second act, the second essential act of ministry. In verse 16, Paul writes... After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. There are theologians out there who would honestly give their right arm to read the lost letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, we presume that letter accompanied the letter being delivered to the Colossians and the letter written to Philemon, um, Uh, Stephen and I are going to have a robust disagreement later about what that letter is because there are so many different ideas. But the point is, the point is, the Apostle Paul didn't think of any of his letters as Scripture as such. He did not think of them on the same level as he would have thought of the Hebrew Scriptures that were the first century church's Bible. But he certainly intended that his letters would convey Jesus the Word to his listeners And he was absolutely committed to ensuring that they understood clearly God's revelation in Christ. And so throughout his letters to the church, he's constantly combating false ideas that are distorting the early church's understanding of Christ. Pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. The mystery of Christ, you might recall, was how Paul in Colossians 1 described the good news that he preached. And we saw back there, we we dealt with the fact that mystery in our vocabulary means something that's difficult or even impossible to understand or explain. But in Paul's vocabulary, mystery describes the gospel as good news about something that was once hidden from human view, but now has been made known to us Christ Jesus by God. So if prayer is our response to God, our speech to God, then Christ is God's word to us, God's speech to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, it's important to know that Jesus is not simply the messenger. Not like the Prophet Muhammad to Muslims or Baha'u'llah to the Baha'i. Jesus is, in fact, the message. What God is doing in creation, what God is achieving in salvation is only done in Christ. He is the centre of God's will. He is the centre of the Father's action in history. Christ is what is going on, and and not as some kind of a sideline to what we normally think of as real history or real personal experience, because the cross of Christ is absolutely the dividing point in history as well as the dividing point in human experience. The cross is absolutely the divine breaking into the world of human sin and human suffering with a, big, with a capital W word. A word that has power to redeem and to transform like no other word that we possess. And part of that mystery now revealed to us in Christ, is the fact that God himself exists as community. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so to be made in his image in the first place, to be a new creation being remade in Christ's image, is fundamentally to be a person designed to be in community. And you might notice that all the language attached to salvation is community language. It's relationship language, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, new birth. Even terms like justification and righteousness can really only be understood in terms of covenant. And that, of course, is all about relationship. So reading scripture as an essential act of Christian ministry is the act of listening to God, allowing God to set Christ as the agenda for our lives. Now, our own narratives are surely important to God, but they are not definitive. Christ's story is definitive. Our own unique personal stories, well, they come to their intended And full shape only as they are placed into the context of God's word in Christ. Attending to scripture together, in fact, puts us in step with reality. But one more act is essential to ministry. And that is spiritual direction. In verses 2 to 3, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. He's coming with Anesimus, our faithful and dear brother. They will tell you everything that is happening with me. Eugene Peterson calls the third essential act spiritual direction. We might better understand this by labeling it spiritual friendship. And he says this takes place when two people agree to give their full attention to what God is doing in one or both of their lives and seek to respond in faith. Giving full attention to what God is doing in one or both of their lives and seeking to respond in faith. Spiritual friendship is the way that we take each person seriously as a unique story. It's also the way that we take... God's story in Christ seriously and and seek to chart the way the unfolding of our stories are actually informed by God's grace and love. Spiritual friendship then assumes that God is at work in the world and he's therefore at work in the lives of people we meet and it seeks to bring what we understand God to be saying in Christ, the word, to bear on one another's lives. Now, my experience of being served by others in this way is that it seems to involve a lot more listening than speaking. That because people are unique, because they're God-imaged, then nobody's lives are simply understood. And those who helped me mature the most were remarkable simply because they took me seriously by listening to me. And they listened a lot. And then they spent time with me in the scriptures, and in prayer. Now, I wouldn't deny it all. The Lord may speak to us in a moment through a prophetic word, but more often our lives are shaped by other believers who love us enough to listen and then to journey with us as we reflect on our experiences in light of God's grace. What are the gifts that God's given me? Where has God located me in life? What do my heartfelt desires reveal about God's will for me? Where does my pain and my suffering lead me to know him and to trust him? We're not talking here about professional counselling. In fact, um, Larry Crabb, a renowned biblical counsellor, maintains that about 90% of what he was called on to do uh, in professional Christian counselling could just as readily be done by ordinary believers learning how to mediate God's grace to each other in the ordinary course of their relationships. And this is not always a comfortable or a pleasant thing. Paul writes, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. We've no idea what Paul is talking about. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, Archippus, see that you complete the work you received in the Lord, but he throws it over to the congregation. He wants the community to prod Archippus back into action, back into ministry is the actual word he uses. Clearly, Archippus has dropped the ball at some point. And which of us hasn't? Real love requires our preparedness to critique one another. Now, hopefully, we would do that graciously, gently, compassionately, but we must be prepared to admonish one another. Or in other words, we must be prepared to tell one another off. And Paul himself doesn't stand in this business as as some great spiritual director or mentor with a capital M. He also relies on the spiritual friendship others, on the loving service of the Christian community towards him. Even in isolation, even under house arrest or locked up in prison, Paul seeks out the Christian community. Pray for us too. Pray that I may proclaim the mystery as I should. We discover that Paul is dependent on the company of people like Epaphras, people that have very often been sent out by The church community with both news and with practical support to sustain him. The fellow Jewish Christians that have remained in close proximity to Paul have proved a great comfort to me, he writes. Well, finally, I would be bold enough to suggest that spiritual friendship actually overflows the bounds of the Christian community. Walk wisely towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This this is not about winning apologetic arguments with non-believers. This is about listening to them also, taking them seriously as people whose lives are to be understood in light of the same reality that we think of our own lives, in light of Christ. Taking these people seriously as people who are also in need of grace. People in whose lives God is also at work in some way. People who are every bit in need of redemption as we are. And people for whom Christ died. Many a spiritual friendship that leads to Christian maturity began with a Christian who took a non-Christian friend's life seriously. We would not have a C.S. Lewis without the friendship of a J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, alone, how well do human beings do all on their own? Well, the participants of the reality TV show alone lent two insights into the human condition. One was that many of their uh, survival techniques were actually owed to the First Nations people of Canada that used to inhabit that area. And, of course, those people lived there as a community. No one person in that community was the repository of all the knowledge or all the skills. Living in that place was the effort of the whole community, but the biggest insight that participants share with the camera was actually a biblical one. It actually comes straight from Genesis. It is not good for the man to be alone. Participants repeatedly identified that the greatest challenge they faced was isolation—not starvation, not not boredom, not cold, not wild animals being alone was the most difficult thing and that surviving is one thing but thriving is altogether another matter and for all of them there was no possibility of thriving without the company of other people that was the single factor that took out the most capable survivalists long before they had exhausted any of their skills and so it is with us we come into this Christian life as a result of a personal, individual response to God's word to us, but we will go on to maturity only as part of the community, because only there are our individual stories brought to their proper intended shape by Christ's story. And we attend to that story together, together listening to scripture, together responding to God in prayer, together learning the art of spiritual friendship that takes God's grace seriously and takes our lives seriously. Let's pause and let's pray.